The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they need justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the Crime Scene. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And I got to tell you something. Usually we're talking about the bad guys, you know, the serial killers, uh, the criminals, whether they be white collar or decidedly blue collar or whatever the case may be. But today we get to call, uh, talk to a good guy. She is a former special agent in the FBI. In fact, she served for 26 years with the FBI and uh, she's gone on to be an author and a podcaster in her own right. And we're so glad to have her with us today. And we're going to talk about FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives and her podcast. And I am talking about Jerry Williams, and Jerry is on the line. And thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited about this show. I am so excited, too. I am a listener of your show. And uh, so it's kind of fun to now be a guest. This is this is cool. Yeah, we just uh, kind of met via Twitter. And I am so excited to have Jerry on the show. She has such an interesting, interesting story. So, I mean, maybe if we could go back a while and talk about how you got into the FBI and what inspired you to do that, because I've got to believe, you know, uh, not an easy road to hoe for a woman wanting to get into the bureau at that time, I'm guessing. Tell me about how you got into the bureau and, and why you decided to follow a, a career in law enforcement. Yeah, you know, it was, there's no other way to say it, but just a fluke because I was a psychology major uh, in college. And when I graduated, I, I, I got a, a good job as what they called an aftercare counselor. And basically it's like a, a juvenile probation officer, but I followed the kids that had been sent away to reform school. And after they came back to the community, I helped them transition back, you know, into school or work or, and so it was a quasi, you know, law enforcement. It was definitely in the criminal justice area. And, uh, you know, I was quite happy, um, you know, because I was using my psychology degree during doing the therapies that I was conducting with the kids. And you know, it was a great job, but oh my God, it was so emotionally demanding because these are kids, these are young teenagers that are involved in assaults and, you know, drugs and prostitution. And, you know, it's just, you know, it was just heartbreaking. And here I was just a kid myself. You know, when I, when I think about it now, since I have kids, you know, around that age, um, you know, I was just a kid myself. I was right out of college and I knew that I probably wasn't going to last long because I was giving too much of myself and I was just looking around. I wasn't really trying to find another job, but I was looking around and next thing I know, I, I saw a advertisement that the FBI was looking for more women and minorities. And there you go. And then that started off the, the whole road. And it's interesting because as I understand it, during most of your career, you worked in regard to economic fraud investigations, white collar crime. And uh, I just want to get your take on this. Uh, one of the problems, I'm very pro-law enforcement. I think that police 
in general get a bad rap. I mean, yeah, sure, there's some bad apples and people who do things that they're not supposed to, but I think particularly, just honestly, in today's environment, I think that law enforcement gets a bad rap. Uh, however, one thing that does bug me about the criminal justice system, at least my perception of it, is that somebody can go and knock off a liquor store, you know, and get 25 years and in, you know, a hardcore prison. And, and then somebody can defraud people of millions of dollars, uh, steal people's retirement funds and all these things. And they end up in one of these kind of club med prisons and they get three or four years in some community service. At least that's my perception. My perception might be incorrect. And that's what I'm asking you about is what is your thought on that? That concern? Is that a valid concern? Absolutely. And it's a concern of mine too. You know, I see it all the time and I, and I think that, you know, there, there needs to be some reform and the federal government tried to do that at one point. They did have guidelines, sentencing guidelines, you know, that, that the judges had to follow and they were very strict on, you know, how much damage, whether it was violence or was it, you know, whether it was financial. And then based on that, you know, where the guidelines should be as far as sentencing, I think they relaxed that a little bit. But I'm not sure if it really worked because you had the ability to ask for a departure. So if you're, if the particular defendant or subject was able to cooperate in the investigation or if they had some other mitigating circumstances, then the prosecutor could agree with the defense to ask for a downward departure in those guidelines. And so there still was a lot of manipulation. But yeah, it's really disturbing to see, you know, the difference in sentencings and punishment, you know, across the board, whether it's local, state or federal, for some people who, you know, do the same crime. Uh, we've got to fix that. I'm not sure how, how, how to do that. But definitely, there needs to be some, some type of sentencing and prison reform. Um, and, and I think most people in law enforcement would agree because they get frustrated too. You know, when they have somebody that they sure. believe should 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 get more time and they don't. So, yeah, I could I could sense that uh, frustration and certainly being in the position you were in, you're not in charge of sentencing. You're not. That's that's somebody else's job. But I just wanted to get your perspective on because that's kind of and again, yeah, I, so I, I definitely. Yeah, I, I was just afraid maybe I was miscasting it or misunderstanding it. But it sounds like I'm on to something. No, you're on to something. Definitely. You're on to something. Now, um, I, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the, the financial crimes, because it's amazing to me the ingenuity in a bad way that people will exhibit to cheat people out of money. And some, you know, some robbers have a gun and others have a pencil or these days a keyboard. Uh, really some ingenious but diabolical plans to separate people from their money. True. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and again, that's what I did for most of my career, you know, working those type of crimes, whether they be Ponzi schemes or advanced fee schemes or business, big business to business telemarketing fraud. And I, I think when you think about a con man or a con woman and you think about, you know, the, the lack of, of empathy or the lack of, of morals that they have, they'll go after anybody. It's, it's a, a crime of opportunity. And if they think they can get somebody's money, even if they're elderly, you know, even if they're 
struggling, you know, and, and they're poor themselves, you know, they'll, they'll take somebody's last dime and it just, it's amazing. It just is mind boggling what people will do to steal other people's money. The other thing that's always fascinated me about people who do, you know, these kind of crimes uh, or even something like serial killers, I think there's one commonality, at least one commonality that I can think of. And particularly with serial killers, they always, a lot of them think, oh, I'm smarter than everybody and nobody will catch me. I bet you've run into that attitude with a lot of people perpetrating these these financial crimes, they're, they're thinking, ah, I'm, I'm smarter than everyone. No one will catch me. Do, do you run into that? All the time. I think that's probably, you know, what really drew me to that type of violation. You know, having somebody underestimate me, you know, when I walk into the room and they're thinking, oh, <laughs> this is the person who's going to investigate this case. This is the person who thinks they're going to figure out what I've done, you know, because I'm a woman, I'm a minority. And, you know, they're, they're just thinking like, this is not, you know, who I'm thinking about when, you know, they're thinking about an FBI agent, but, uh, uh every time <laughs> we won, the good guys won. <laughs> well, it, it, it kind of reminds me of this idea of underestimation. Uh, I, uh, you'll remember it. There was the old TV show Columbo and yes. he would walk in and everybody, and again, it's a TV show, but everybody would think, ah, you know, you'd have one of these big stars who was the guest star and they're, they're all suave and they're rich or whatever. And you've got this guy and not saying that you had a, I'm, I, I, I see the pictures of you. You're very well put together, but I mean, this guy with this rumpled coat, just to say that they would always miss, uh, misunderstand him and miss, uh, and underestimate him. And think, oh, well, I can get away with anything. I just have to humor him and he'll go away. And he never went away. <laughs> yeah. And, and you would be amazed, especially in the early days, you know, how many of those guys, and there usually were guys that I was investigating, you know, how patronizing and, you know, oh, isn't she cute? <laughs> Because yeah. I was cute back then. <laughs> but I bet they didn't think you were so cute after you uh, you got them. <laughs> no, not, no, not, not really. But you know what? I, I really shouldn't say that because I was able to develop these relationships, not friendships. Please don't think there are friendships, but these relationships with the people that I was investigating. And I think that is something that most FBI agents, you know, develop that gift. And that helps to get people to cooperate with you. And it's one of the reasons where after, you know, we do investigate a case and somebody is sent away to prison that we often get calls and cards from them, you know, letting us know, you know, how they're doing because, hey, they know that, that we were just doing our job and that uh, we treated them with respect and, and, uh, a consideration, and, and they certainly did appreciate that. In terms of working for the FBI, I mean, and, and this really gets into your work these days, your recent book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions. What do people get right? What do they get wrong? What are some of the big things that people don't understand or misunderstand about being an FBI agent? Well, I think one of the, the biggest things is they'd like to kind of put us in the same area as local and state law enforcement. And we are very similar, but we're different. You know, so some of the things that I might see in a, in a book or a TV show, 
may have the FBI doing something that really is not within the FBI jurisdiction are just not the way the FBI would handle that particular uh, situation. Um, and, and so that's usually where I see most of the things they get wrong. But the biggest thing that they get wrong, the really one that just is my pet peeve, is that the FBI feels like or treats their law enforcement partners like their subordinates, you know, that there is a hierarchy and that just is not the case. So when they come in and work with uh, local or state authorities, they're not, quote, bigfooting them as we see many times in, in television and film. Yeah, that's absolutely true. As a matter of fact, you had an episode, I'm trying to remember how far back it was, but it was with the uh, one of the um, detectives uh, from the Maryland State Police who was talking about the D.C. sniper case. Yes. Yes, I was going to say, do you remember that? Yes, but of I course do. you do. <laughs> it's your show, and and that's one of the things that he really uh, talked about was how there were all of these police agencies involved, you know, local, state, federal. I I can't remember how many he said, but that's just an example of what happens on a big case like that. But they're even on smaller cases. The FBI is always working, you know, with their law law enforcement partners when it's appropriate. And it's not like, you know, they're leading everything. Sometimes the FBI is just called in to assist on a local police matter. It's uh, it's a really good relationship. It was a relationship that was already in place way before 9-11, but which which has uh, become even stronger since then. It strikes me, and we've talked about this on the shows, that uh, uh, in cases like serial killers and, and so forth, maybe the reason years and years ago, and this is 30, 40 years ago and beyond, these people could have longer runs is because different agencies in different jurisdictions didn't talk to each other. They didn't share records. So you couldn't see patterns. You couldn't alert people that there might be somebody committing a certain type of crime and that things have really changed quite a bit in terms of effectiveness because uh, local state and federal all work together these days where you didn't have as much, at least from local to local, you used to not have that much partially because of attitudes maybe, and partially because of lack of technology. And they didn't have the technology that we have today with shared computer databases and so forth. Exactly. And just money. I mean, you have many smaller police departments that just don't have the resources in order to, to, to try to pull all that information together. And so basically what you have now is the ability to share resources and manpower to, you know, get the job done. And you're right. When you have a, a serial killer who jumps from town to town and state to state, you know, they at one time, it, you know, would have been difficult to try to look for those patterns. But now with the VICAP system and the, and the highway uh, serial, I forgot what it's called, uh, system, you know, all these com- com- uh, computer systems where they're inputting information about missing people and, you know, human mar- 
uh, human <laughs> remains that are found and people that are murdered in this state and trying to make a connection. You know, that's really, really working. And you, you heard the news this, this past weekend about uh, the serial killer, the most prolific serial killer in United States history, yes. Samuel Little. And that is just an example of, you know, the ability for, you know, state and law and, and federal law enforcement to work together to, to look at the victims and to piece all of these things together. I mean, it's really fabulous the way everybody is coming together. And it's interesting. I'm from Ohio, so familiar with that case and have heard it. And it's just chilling. He, he draws pictures of his victims and he can draw them by memory, apparently. Yeah. And uh, just photographic. Just yeah. Just frightening, frightening. Now, um, you were talking about computers. And I think uh, I'm looking at your list of misconceptions in your book. And number eight, I think, taps onto one of my pet peeves when I watch TV shows or films about law enforcement. They'll, they'll have a computer terminal okay and they'll type uh, somebody's name in and of course you'll have the sound effects blip, 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 and it'll make this ridiculous graphical representation that looks like no computer i've ever seen and it's like you know they have this huge long you know lifetime database on one person but you make the point there uh, there is a misnomer out there that there is one central database that that sounds like a misconception oh it definitely is i mean i I think what the shows do is to, you know, to, to give that impression. But in reality, you know, the medical records are kept in one data, not one database, but multiple databases, depending on your insurance company or a hospital or a medical system. Then you've got your military informations and and one you know database and then your financials and other databases and your education and your mental health. They're all all over, all over the country and, and many, many different databases. And so when an analyst or a detective or a special agent needs to look at this information, there is not one place they can go. They have to go to all of these places. And most, and many of these uh, situations, these systems, they'll need a warrant, you know, they'll, or they'll need a cons consent form to be able to go to all these places and gather the information. They make it sound so much easier on TV because they only have an hour yeah. to, uh, to, to get the case solved. Well, that, that kind of speaks to something else. You talk about a court order. There is this thought out there, if you watch shows, and it's going back a little bit, but uh, Sopranos and things like that, that the FBI can tap wiretap anybody. Uh, just uh, willy-nilly. But you say that's not at all the case. Oh, not at all. I mean, the stringent documentation and procedures that you have to go to to do any type of, of intercept, you know, whether it be, you know, a, you know, by wire or your overhearing or electronic communications, it all has to be authorized. The FBI is not allowed to do that. And, Unless there's a case of a third party consensual uh, consent, consent. Uh, but otherwise, if you're just going to tap into somebody's, uh, you know, communications, you're going to have to go through the court to get that. And the court is going to ask you to establish a number of facts about your investigation to prove that you have probable cause that this wiretap, which is very intrusive, you know, is is the only way that you're going to be able to get the information that you need.
And how has technology affected that? I mean, you have things like Skype, you have Zoom, which we're talking on right now. You have cell phones and all these different communications. I mean, it seems to me that maybe 30 years ago, it was a lot simpler because you tap somebody's landline and you got it. Now you've got to go after all these alternate modes of communication. I would think it would make your job harder in this case. Absolutely. And it's really funny because my sister used to work for Verizon and her job, she was the person who would receive these court orders and would set up the wiretap communications you know, through the, the Verizon telephone line. So, and I, I, I know exactly, you know, how, how that system works, but now when you have, you know, communications that are encrypted, you know, digital communications where you're fighting with the, you know, different services, services, you know, like Apple and like Facebook in, in order to be able to access that, you know, I, it's, and I do understand when they, when they're talking about privacy, but when it comes to law enforcement's ability to do their job, there has got to be an understanding that, you know, we need this information, especially, you know, in a terrorist situation, sure. you got a cell phone, we need to get into that cell phone. And uh, I'm sorry, but privacy be damned. You got to be able to prove, you know, that that, why you believe that there is vital evidence in that cell phone and you need to prove that to through the court and have a judge make a decision. But once you've been able to establish know why you need to get into that encrypted device you know i it's really strange and, and hard for me to understand why a company would then continue to fight that it is uh, certainly a sticky wicket there's no question about that and then that battle i think is going to go on for for a while yeah Sometimes, Jerry, it seems that FBI agents are portrayed as almost robotic. Uh, that old Jack Webb character on Dragnet, even though he wasn't an FBI agent, comes to mind. Just the facts, ma'am. Is that true? Are, are agents that stiff or are they they much more well-rounded? Much more well-rounded. As a matter of fact, you know, I that's one of the things I loved about being an agent is, you know, the other agents. I mean, they were hilarious. A lot of practical jokes and just some of the things that they said, the snide remarks that, you know, it's, they're very clever and, and, and quick wit. And I really enjoyed that. So I think people have that attitude or that, that depiction, you know, from the Hoover days when Hoover was just so very clear on how he wanted all the agents to look. Right. You know, how he wanted them to dress, how he wanted them to carry themselves. And if he heard or if he saw somebody with a rumpled suit or maybe acne, you know, the, the word is that he would, you know, want to get rid of this person or, or send them away to Butte, Montana, because he was so strict about what perception every agent, you know, portrayed for the bureau every he considered every agent and i think we still do now that every agent represents the fbi and so that image was the only image that people saw but even back then i'm sure the agents were having you know uh, lots of fun and 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 you know were, uh, were were also as as clever as they are now um and especially when you talk about emotion i think 
I think that's one of the things that really sets us apart is that we really care not just about the victims of the crimes that we investigate, but we care about the subjects of the crimes that we investigate. And you know, making sure that they are treated in a way that, you know, allows them to, uh, you know, keep their dignity. Not necessarily, because I want to be clear on that, not necessarily because, you know, we just love everyone, but we're trying to develop cooperation. And I don't care how many movies or TV shows you see where there's an interrogation room and people have their finger and they're shouting at people and screaming at them and threatening them. That is not how it works. How it works is, you know, being kind to someone, treating them with respect, no matter what they've done in order to have them feel, have them believe that you're there for them. And that, you know, if they tell you something that they're not going to be judged. This is kind of an off the wall question, but I'd be interested because I think most of us, I mean, and I, I generally feel this way. It's I'm kind of like, Hey, if they did something bad, lock them away and throw up the key, throw away the key. But, but I guess, you know, part of our justice system is supposed to be about the idea of redemption and rehabilitation and those kind of things in this financial crime area. Have you run into one or more cases where somebody did something bad? Okay. Undeniably bad. Uh, they were punished for it and they came back and they contributed and maybe even surpassed the bad they did with the good they later contributed after the fact. Have, have you ever run into a case like that? I'm trying to, to think, you know, I, I don't know if they've done what they've come back, you know, after going to jail and, you know, done something fabulously good, but they've been able to leave, you know, you know, normal lives and contribute to their families. And, you know, I've definitely seen that. And, and I would imagine that the uh, rate of recidivism for white collar crime is much lower than it is for violent crime. Uh, but you know, I've seen some, some con men who get out of jail and they're back at it again. It's the way it's, it's more than just a way of making a living for them. They also just enjoy cheating people and lying to people and stealing from people. And, you know, we've got to admit it that there are some people who just aren't going to change that going to prison is a way for them to learn more about the crimes yeah. that they want to commit and not necessarily, uh, you know, find redemption. Now your title was FBI special agent. And I mean, that sounds, you know, that sounds really cool. That's really a cool title, but what does exactly being a special agent mean? Well, there are many agents in the government, you know, any, uh, an agent who works for the government is somebody who's, you know, an employee that, that can, you know, do work for the, uh, the government. The, the title of special is where the FBI and CIA, I mean, not CIA, but FBI, Secret Service, ATF, uh, DEA, we're all special agents. And that special title gives us the ability to make arrests and carry weapons. And so that is the distinction between, you know, being an agent of the government and being a special agent with those law enforcement authority. 
That's that I, I that sounds like quite an achievement and, and great on you for being able to reach that level. That's just uh, fantastic. Now, so you you decide to retire from the agency and in this um, second career um, that that's interesting to me. Why did you choose the career that you've chosen being a writer and now you're a podcaster? What kind of spurred you on to that? Cause I think it's really, you talk about a second chapter. What a neat second chapter. Yeah, it is, but it wasn't that, that huge of a leap because again, most of my career, I, worked on an economic crime squad. But the last five years of my career, I was uh, appointed as the what they called the, the media representative or the spokesperson for the Philadelphia division. And the Philadelphia division is like the fourth largest media market in the country. Yep. So, you know, when you're the spokesperson for an office like Philadelphia, you know, I, I was frequently in front of local and, and national media. I was always talking to, you know, reporters from newspapers, you know, dealing with uh, producers and, you know, movie people and authors who were interested in learning about the FBI. That was my job to, to provide information to the media and to the public about the FBI. You know, and those cases, of course, that were, uh, we were able to, to, to discuss uh, publicly. And in that job also, it's also kind of a public affairs job. I was creating things to promote the FBI, you know, different uh, programs and videos and, and things like that. So it, it's not really that far-fetched that I was able to go from uh, the FBI uh, because I did have that transitional collateral duty or full-time uh, or, uh, assi- administrative assignment just before I left the Bureau. And then I didn't do what I'm doing now directly after my retirement. I worked for seven years as the director of media relations for SEPTA, which is the Philadelphia Transportation Authority. So and I was in charge of getting out information to the public about the buses, the trains, the trolleys, the um, subways. And SEPTA also has their own uh, police force. And so I talked about, you know, crime that occurred on the system. Then, after doing that for seven years, I knew that I really, really wanted to write books and, um, you know, and continue that creative um journey that that uh, I was starting to, to to really tap into you know as a profession and so I quit <laughs> you know I think it's <laughs> really surprising for people you know I didn't tell people I was you know re- resigning or retiring I said I'm quitting the day job and I'm going to go out and, and write crime novels and uh, I started the podcast and you know uh, out of the podcast came this last book FBI myths and misconceptions and I'm having a blast yeah, I mean, you, you've written this book and you've written other books. You've written a couple of fiction books, as I understand, Greedy Givers and Pay to Play. You've done that. Mm-hmm. You've done uh, FBI Myths and Misconceptions. And you have this podcast, FBI Retired Case Files Review or File Review. Tell us a little bit about that, because I love the idea of true crime. I love the idea of history. Sounds like a great marriage. Yeah, it really is. I really, <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I really enjoy my own podcast. And I think you have to, if you have an interview show, you, if you've got to be honestly 
interested in what yes. your guests have to say. And I am absolutely just in love with the opportunity I have to, to talk to so many special agents retired now um, that I never got a chance to meet uh, when I was in the Bureau, but I interview retired FBI agents about some of the FBI's biggest cases and some really fascinating cases that people have never heard about. And it's more of a, a police procedural, you know, when you talk about crime, where we're going to take you from the very beginning of when the agent first learned about this violation to the very end and all of the things that he or she did in order to find the evidence to, you know, get this to, to, to indict the person and, uh, you know, put them behind bars. If there was one thing, and maybe we've already covered it, but if there was one thing that you could impress upon people about the FBI, its people and its work, what would it be? That we're dedicated, that, that the agents are looking for justice. And if we're working on a case and it looks like the person is not responsible, then we move on to another subject or, you know, are looking for evidence that uh, leads us in another direction. We're not trying to go after anyone. We're just trying to bring justice. And it doesn't make a difference. You know, I've, I've done 183 episodes, you know, over almost a four year period. And, you know, I, whether it's an, an espionage case or a drug investigation or organized crime or white collar crime, or I'm, I can't think of violent crime, you know, it's, it's really the same pattern of getting an allegation at the beginning and then carrying it through to find out if there's anything true, any truth to this allegation, and then building on the evidence to prove, you know, who did it. And, and, and I think that fairness, that integrity behind the mission is one of the most important things that I try to get across in each episode without having to hammer it down. You know, what I try to do is let the interviews speak for themselves. As you hear the agents, then you can really get an understanding of who the FBI is and what the FBI does. It's so cool. And the thing that I, I believe... The work you're doing now, you do this book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions. You're cleaning up these misconceptions for just people who are interested in this, maybe people writing true crime and or, or writing novels, uh, fictionalized novels, where they want to get it right, and you've given them a great resource from that. And then you have this podcast. So to me, not only did you service for 26 years in the FBI, but you continued through your independent work and you're also serving the FBI too, in a way. I think that's great. Yeah. And, and, and really, I guess I, you know, I, I, I guess I, I call it a mission because I just feel the, the need, especially, you know, the FBI has been taking some pot shots and, you know, hits and, 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 and the public and the media. And, you know, that just makes me angry uh, that, Somebody wants to take a broad brush and just cover everybody. And, and 
again, I let the case reviews speak for themselves. When, you know, anybody has any question about the integrity and the mission and the purpose of the FBI, you know, listen to a couple of these episodes and just hear about the dedication and the sacrifices that, you know, the agents make as they do, you know, as they work these cases. And I don't think you'll have any doubts about uh, what the FBI stands for. Now, Jerry, I'm looking at this book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions. It seems to me that it would be suited for anybody who's interested in true crime or law enforcement. Uh, but who specifically did you have in mind uh, while you were doing this? And did that evolve at all? Yeah. So when I first started writing it, of course, I was looking at you know the myths of the, about the FBI and books, TV and movies. So I was thinking that it was going to be for people who wrote crime novels or maybe, you know, someone that, you know, watched TV shows. And then, of course, also for somebody who was interested in joining the FBI. But as I listened to the, as I listened to the different true crime podcasts, I'm thinking that even those people who are putting together their own shows may want to listen to my podcast and read my book and then also look at other podcast and, and books about police procedurals, because I think it's going to help them do better as they put their, their shows together. Because sometimes I listen to true crime shows and they'll say something about a law enforcement procedure or policy and they get it wrong too. So I'll have to add, you know, along with people who read and write about crime fiction and people who are interested in being in the FBI. I think I'm going to ha have to add that this book would be very good for podcasters who are in the true crime genre who would like to have a better understanding so that they can do a better job with their own episodes. And I think that audience alone would be large enough to make this a bestseller because there's thousands of true crime podcasts. I mean, I started way back in 2011 with this show. After some of the other shows I started in, my goodness, the field is so crowded now. So there's got to be thousands of true crime podcasters alone. Well, I would love for this to become a bestseller. So yeah, let's, uh, let's see if we can make that happen. Thank you. <laughs> so the question is where can they find more about you at your website where can they find the books and where can they find the podcast yes so everything they can you know find at my website which is jerrywilliams.com and that's j-e-r-r-i and i have all of my books listed there my books are available wherever books are sold. Of course, you know, Amazon is the big dog, but you can get them at Barnes and Noble. Uh, there are in, in uh, audiobooks, ebooks, uh, paperback and hardback. The podcast is available wherever you listen to your podcast. And uh, again, uh, you know, 183 episodes uh, available in breaking down all of the FBI violations that you could think of. I have at least one, if not 10, you know, episodes that talk about that particular violation. Uh, so uh, jerrywilliams.com. And of course, I'm on Twitter, jerrywilliams1, Instagram, jerrywilliams1, and Facebook, jerrywilliamsauthor. 
Well, it has been a pleasure to speak with you, Jerry Williams. Thank you for your service and thank you for being our guest today on The Crime Scene. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into The Crime Scene. We appreciate it. And Jerry, she was a great guest. I really enjoyed our chat. If you like this show, please rate, review, subscribe, or follow wherever you listen. Some places call it subscribe, some call it follow. Either way, it helps us out and it helps you out because you never miss an episode. And in terms of ratings and reviews, I kind of got away from that. I was listening to some of the podcasting intelligentsia who said, oh, that's not important anymore. So I didn't think I'd bother you, you with it. And then I heard someone else who is a smart person in this field say, actually, it does matter. So I'm going to say it matters. To me, it makes sense. People are looking for shows. They happen upon my show, see a great review from you, and maybe they tune in. So please do rate and review. But first and foremost, subscribe or follow wherever you listen. It helps us immensely. I thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. And as always, be careful out there. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.